invite you to turn with me again to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 11. We've looked at much of that chapter already extensively. I want to continue with that this morning. Matthew chapter 11, and I want to read the verses 16 through to the end of verse 24. I want to begin to read verse 16 and read to the end of verse 24, and our text will be framed in the verses 20 through 24. Matthew chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 16. This is the word of God. But to what shall I liken this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their companions and saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not lament. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is justified by her children. And now follow the words of our text. Then he began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven, will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I say to you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May God add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered with me here in Bowmanville this morning, a thoughtful Bible-believing Christian reads the words of our text of this morning and begins to tremble one would be hard-pressed to find any other portion of Scripture where more terrifying words were spoken by the Lord. Woe to you. Woe. Calamity is predicted. We, we catch here a sense of an impending catastrophe. Woe to you. We can't read those words without, without apprehending a sense of terror and alarm. And, and then he adds, as if to add insult to the injury, he, Christ reminds us of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom and Gomorrah. And those towns do not hold fond memories for us. Even our children can, can remember something of the story of Sodom that was destroyed by fire and brimstone sent by judgment in, in, from heaven. And now here in the words of our text, Jesus re refers to all of these godless cities and we hear him say, woe unto you. And as we said it all in the context of the continual rejection of Christ by the Pharisees in the earlier part of this chapter, and if we take all of these things together in that context, then we are immediately aware that our Lord wants us to consider something of extreme urgency. And my dear precious people of God here in Bowmanville, it's always so terribly important that as we read and interpret scripture, we take the passage and interpret it 
understand it, explain it in the context in which it is given. And that is so very important here in this passage. We need to interpret our text in the context of all of the rest of this chapter, especially since the indictment here spoken by Christ builds on the foundation that he's been laying throughout this entire chapter. As the chapter opened, you remember, as the chapter opened up, you remember that we heard the disciples of John the Baptist inquiring of the Christ, hey, listen, are you the one? Are you the one that we have been waiting for all this time? Or, or have we got that wrong? Should we look for another? And then Jesus confirms that he is indeed the awaited Messiah. And he points to the evidence of his divinity in his preaching and his ministry of miraculous works. He points them to the scriptures and shows that the things that had been prophesied about him were now being fulfilled. And then after the disciples had left to bring that message to John, Jesus turns to the crowd and he begins to admonish them. He confronts them with the fact that the greatest prophet that had ever lived had come among them to tell them the greatest story ever told, and the crowds had failed to respond in repentance and faith. They had remained indifferent and cool. And we heard all of that in the second part of the chapter. Then Jesus continues in this chapter, and he identifies their hypocrisy. I remind you of that little parable. We read it again this morning, but we, we looked at it extensively. The children in the marketplace you claimed John to be too sour, too melancholy, too austere to be believed. You called him a religious fanatic, and you rejected him because of his idiosyncrasies. You declared him to be an idiot. Then, says Jesus, the Son of God came to you, preaching the same message, demonstrating many marvelous signs and miracles as evidence, having, having none of John's eccentricities, and, and you found him to be a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and tax collectors, and still you failed to respond. And Jesus likens their fickleness to children's at play. We piped and you would not dance, we mourned and you would not lament. In other words, says Jesus, in other words, no matter what was done, it did not meet with your approval. And he then summarized the whole situation and says, from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom suffers violence, but the violent take it by storm. You remember we looked at that as well. In other words, many have rejected the gospel message, had done violence to the kingdom, but those few who do embrace it are so radically changed by it that they become, as it were, violent people, violent or excited and aggressive people. They become consumed by their desire to be soldiers of the cross. And at the heart of Jesus' admonition throughout this chapter is the obstinate indifference of the Jews. They had heard his teaching. They had seen his works. God had sent John to them, and repentance had been the first note of his message. We heard his voice crying in the wilderness, Repent, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. Already now the axe is laid to the foot of the tree in impending judgment. And God then sends his own son, bringing that same message in different words. But the message had gone unheeded. And with the exception of a relative few, they would not come that they might have salvation. And it is now in that context that we find Christ speaking the words of condemnation in our text. And what we need to capture is that Jesus condemns the impenitent, but he does so not in wrath, but in sorrow. 
We remember that Christ would later weep over impenitent Jerusalem. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the ungodly. And now having done all that was possible to convince them of their great need and seeing the Jews steadfastly persisting in their refusal to embrace the gospel, he speaks here the most frightening words found in all of scripture. Let us now here in Beaumontville listen to these solemn words this morning. And let us take to heart Christ's insistence that a personal conversion, a personal conversion and repentance is at the very essence of the Christian religion. And let us be reminded this morning that the outward privileges of the gospel passage or the gospel message are lost upon us if they do not, by God's grace, produce the fruit of faith, repentance, and obedience. Let the warning here given serve also as an impetus to each of us to urgently search our own hearts. I administer God's word to you this morning using as my theme, Jesus' indictment upon the unrepentant or impenitent. Jesus' indictment upon the impenitent. We will learn from our text, first of all, the way of judgment explained, and then we will be shown the way of escape from the judgment. His indictment upon the unrepentant, the way of judgment explained, and the way of escape explained. Congregation, the doctrine of judgment has fallen on hard times among us, among most of contemporary Christianity. This whole concept of a God who would condemn anyone simply doesn't fit with the image of that self-styled God constructed in the hearts of modern men and women. After all, God is a God of love. A God of love could not possibly do such a thing. Speak to me, they say, speak to me of the God of the prodigal. Speak to me of the Christ who said, come unto me, all you who are weak and heavy laden. Speak to me of the, of the God of love and compassion. Speak to me of him who said, my peace I give to you, my peace I leave with you. But don't tell me of a Christ who speaks words of wrath, judgment, and woe. That's not my God. Perhaps not, but it is the God of the scripture. And our text opens up with the words, and then he began to rebuke. He began to rebuke the cities in which most of his, his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. <coughs> Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin, first of all. Chorazin is mentioned not at all in the Old Testament, and we hear of it only here and in the parallel account of the same story in the Gospel of Luke. There is general agreement among exegetical historians that it refers to a town which is now in ruins, which at the time of our text was situated about two miles from Capernaum, and the fact that we know nothing about this town and the work of Christ in this town reminds us, first of all, of how little we actually know of the life and the work of Christ. We have here only one quick reference to what was obviously an extensive ministry. Obviously, during the course of the working of Christ, many miracles were performed by him in Chorazin. And yet we hear of none of them. None of them are recorded for us. The previous verse states that most of his mighty works, most of his mighty works had been done there. 
And yet we know none of that from our Bibles. The scriptures are silent to us and it's forbidden to speculate as to why that might be so. Next we hear, woe to you, Bethsaida. And the exact location of this town is also a matter of investigation. Scripture is not really clear as to its exact location, especially since there was more than one town with that name. However, in this context, it is most likely that the Bethsaida here referred to was found in close proximity to Capernaum and consequently also close to Chorazin. And if that is correct, then it was the hometown of Philip, Andrew, and Peter. And the Gospel of Mark tells us that Jesus gave sight to a blind man in Bethsaida. And Luke locates the feeding of the 5,000 in close proximity to this place. And again, although scripture does not give us the details, apparently Jesus did many marvelous things there which are not recorded. But even so, in spite of his preaching and teaching, in spite of his many mighty works that were done, the citizens did not repent. And people got Jesus makes it clear here that he had done much more in these cities than the scripture records for us. He has indicated that his preaching and teaching had amazed the Jews. They had aped and gaped, if you will, but they did not repent. And now Christ begins to upbraid them. He begins to rebuke and admonish them. He insists that his ministry required a response And since that response of faith and repentance was not forthcoming, we read the words, Jesus begins to rebuke the cities, the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And Jesus now drives home the enormity of the sin of the citizens of Chorazin and Bethsaida. He reminds them of two other cities, Tyre and Sidon. And their history is necessary for us to know, again, in this context. Tyre and Sidon had been great and powerful cities for centuries, and their proximity to Israel had meant a good deal of contact between them. However, they were pagan cities, and their customs and their practices offended the Jews, and the ungodly and pagan reputation of these cities were well known to the Jews. The Old Testament prophets, namely Ezekiel and Isaiah and Amos, they had vigorously denounced the state of affairs in these towns. The prophets had spoken specifically of the corruption of these towns. And although Christ sometimes went to the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he did not venture into these towns to proclaim God's grace. In fact, the, the, the Jews of the day would have been highly offended had Jesus set foot in these godless communities and therefore to compare Chorazin and Bethsaida, Jewish towns, to the pagan towns of Tyre and Sidon was all the more humiliating and offensive to them. The point was already being well made by Christ. We could almost hear the indignation of the Jews. How dare you? How dare? How do you dare to compare us to those godly pagans of Tyre and Sidon. And as we now begin to open up the text we hear in verse 21 and it's parallel verse 23 the curious words of Christ. If the mighty works were performed in Tyre and Sidon they would have repented. And now we need to walk carefully for a moment. The words could lead to much speculation for the undisciplined student. Walk with me here. If, if, as Christ says, given the chance, if given the chance, 
Tyre and Sidon would have been converted, and God does indeed desire the salvation of all men, why then was the gospel not preached there? Why would God choose to pass by those towns and leave them in their sin as being reprobate? Why would he continue to frustrate himself here in these towns where men and women would spurn the gospel? Why then not go to the place where men and women would repent and believe? And for much of this we have no answer, and speculation is forbidden. However, all of this, as well as the words here of Christ, must be understood in the context of God's sovereignty and his omnipotence. Follow with me. We know from our Bibles that God, before the world's foundations were laid, had determined in accordance with his own divine eternal decree all those whom he would redeem in the blood of Christ. God, in his own good pleasure, determined those whom he would favor with redeeming grace, and then he distinguished them from all those whom he would pass by and leave to perish in their own sin. For us then to fault God for the wisdom of his electing love would be to rob him of his authority and to elevate ourselves to a position which the scripture acknowledges to be his alone. Furthermore, we are reminded of the words of scripture that God has the sovereign right and the authority as potter to have determination over the end result of the clay. But another thought needs to be captured by us here as well, and that has to do with the all-knowing and the omnipotence of God. We read here that Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they would have been granted the same grace as was given to Chorazin and Bethsaida. In other words, Christ, who knew all things, also knew that the hearts of these godless citizens would have turned had God chosen to present the gospel there. However, God, in his wisdom, for whatever reason, had chosen to withhold his grace from them, and they would perish eternally in their sin. What Jesus points us to here is that had he lived and worked among the pagans in Tyre and Sidon, they would have been moved by it, and they would have repented, repented even in sackcloth and ashes, as we know from the example of Nineveh. Had Tyre and Sidon been confronted with Jesus, they would have long ago grieved over their sin. But I tell you, says Christ, I tell you, says Christ, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you standing here with me today. My dear people, God, the day of judgment, of course, refers to the day of that final judgment when all men and women, Israelites and Gentiles alike, will be called to give an account, it was a day which most Israelites anticipated with a false confidence. That was the urgency here of Christ's warning. The Jews assumed that in the day of judgment they would be better off than the pagans of Tyre and Sidon. Think again. Think again, says Jesus. In reality, the pagans will be better off. It will be more tolerable for them, for those pagans, than it will be for you. And we need to note those words carefully. He doesn't say that the citizens of these pagan towns would not be punished. He doesn't suggest that these pagans will be saved. No. What Jesus argues here, and this is important for us to understand, Christ here teaches that on judgment day, 
those who have heard, those who have had greater opportunity, example like Chorazin and Bethsaida, will be judged more severely than those who have been given less. I want to repeat that. Jesus teaches here, remember carefully, that on the day of judgment, those who have had greater opportunity will be judged more severely than those who have been given less opportunity. Mighty people, I think it's correct to say that this text has great relevance to the perplexing question of those unreached by the gospel. Many people are so often troubled by the question, what happens to all those people who have not rejected the gospel per se because they've never heard of it? What about all of those people in the world who have never heard the gospel? And I think this text gives us a clue to answering that question. In other words, when we apply the text of this morning to that question, it would appear that all those who have not been reached with the gospel will still die eternally, but their eternal punishment will be less severe than those who have heard and rejected the gospel. <coughs> Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazin. But Jesus is not finished. Our text continues. Christ now directs his attention to Capernaum. Capernaum, you'll remember, is a town that was well known in the gospel narratives. In chapter 9 of Matthew, it's even referred to as Jesus' own city. And now, instead of pronouncing a woe as was done earlier, notice with me here that Christ addresses them with a question. But notice also that it is a question which is so framed that it expects a negative answer. Again, the main point here is that the town of Capernaum, in spite of all of the graces bestowed upon them by John and by Christ, had remained impervious and unaffected. And Jesus now addresses the citizens of Capernaum, and he likens them to the king of Babylon, who in Isaiah 14 is pictured as boasting that he will go to heaven, and then is in fact described in reality as descending into the lowest parts of Sheol. Hear the words of our Lord with me. In a question impregnated with dramatic emphasis, Jesus asks, And you, Capernaum, you don't really expect to be exalted to heaven, do you? And the irony here, of course, is that that's exactly what Capernaum expected. After all, we have Abraham as our father. That was, that was not only their, their argument, it was in fact the basis of the assurance of their salvation. And you, Capernaum, you don't really expect to be exalted in heaven. Of course we're going to heaven. Of course we're going to heaven. We are Abram's chosen race. And swift and direct comes the answer from Christ. To Hades you will be brought. And although not in all places in the New Testament, but certainly in all places of the Gospels, the word Hades is synonymous or interchangeable with the word hell. So then we can read the words of Christ and to read, And you, Capernaum, you expect to go to heaven, but I tell you, you will go to hell. And Jesus' dire prediction applied first of all to Capernaum as a city. It would become a conspicuous example of desolation and deathly silence. The prophecy was strikingly fulfilled. Today there's almost no evidence that where that once great city stood. But the most frightening judgment would fall on the inhabitants of Capernaum, banished to hell, they would receive their just reward because they failed to repent. 
in words that resemble what was said earlier about Chorazin and Bethsaida, we learn how harsh that day of judgment would be for them. Jesus compares Capernaum to Sodom, the classic example of human depravity, of wickedness. If Sodom would have seen the miracles performed by Christ as, been, as had been tasted of in, in, in Capernaum, Sodom would have repented and would never have been wiped from the face of the earth in God's anger. Sodom, even Sodom, Sodom, the epitome of degeneracy, would have repented and found grace. But Capernaum, because you have heard and you have still rejected so great a salvation, the curse of judgment day will be infinitely greater for you than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah, says Jesus. Sodom, says Jesus, was not as impervious to the meaning of Christ's preaching as was Capernaum. Capernaum continued to resist, to, to resist the work of Christ, even in the face of great graces given them, and therein would lay their condemnation even more so than that of Sodom. My dear precious people, God, what's given us here for our consideration cannot leave us cold and unaffected. You'll remember that that was precisely the sin of the Jews. That's what brought this indictment to them from Christ. They went to hell because of their cool indifference to the gospel message. I wonder if perhaps among us there are those who feel that the words of our text are inconsistent with the God of love whom we cherish. Perhaps even for some of us here this morning, it's difficult to reconcile the God of love and mercy with the same God of justice and, and wrath. But we need to capture here the complete Christ as he's given us here in our text. You see, had Christ simply pronounced judgment upon sin without offering a way of escape, he would still be within his own sovereign will. We remember that any who are saved are saved only because of the electing love of a sovereign God who freely chooses in Christ. But had God not shown the way out of this indictment, then perhaps our unease with this doctrine of judgment would at least be somewhat more understandable. But we need to remember, first of all, that judgment is an essential doctrine of all of Scripture. Without the doctrine of God's judgment upon sin, Christ becomes superfluous. He becomes unnecessary. A Savior is not needed if there is no judgment upon sin. Consequently, remove the doctrine of judgment from the Bible, and you have no Bible. For you have a gospel, you have no gospel, and you need no Christ. But, but, but equally important and taught with equal vigor in the scripture, taught even here in this, in this text of judgment, is God's love. Capture this with me. Jesus did not simply wander into Capernaum, but Bethsaida and Chorazin and pronounce weal and woe and, and as he wandered the streets. <coughs> <coughs> No, as our text shows, God never announces judgment until he has first of all given opportunity. The message was brought to them. They had the greatest prophet that ever lived. They had John the Baptist in the wilderness. They had Christ sent to them by the Father. And they were given to see again and again and again the marvelous works of Christ. 
Remember the text that said earlier that most of Christ's mighty works have been done there. And then both John and Christ preached the gospel of God's grace, crying out, repent, repent for the kingdom is at hand. And again and again and again, God in love reached out to the men and women of these cities in love. He showed them the way in love. He preached and worked miracles in love. He held the door wide open for them in love. In love, he chastised, rebuked, and admonished them. In love, he told them of an eternity in hell if they persisted in their refusal to believe and repent. And it was not until they spat in his face that he pronounced woe and judgment. We may not like the teaching of judgment given us here, but we may not fail to see that also the great, the threat of judgment is given us in the context of the love of God. My dear precious saints of God, there is indeed an element of fear in the Bible, and it is there because of the love of God. For man not to be frightened enough to think seriously about his own condition on the day of judgment has got to be the epitome, the apex of a rejection of God's love. Consequently, a failure to warn unbelievers of the threat of God's curse on unbelief is not an expression of love. It is a failure to witness to God's love. My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Salem this morning, serious and solemn things have been taught us here by God this morning. We do well to reflect seriously on these things. We've heard that the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum all assumed to be going to heaven in the sweet by and by. But according to Jesus in our text, they will open their eyes in hell because they heard the gospel and did not repent. They had had great religious advantages. Jesus himself had been in their midst to preach and to teach and they remained unconverted and impenitent. Life went on as before. Such a warning must make to tingle the ears of all of us who hear the gospel regularly, as did the Jews of our text. How great the guilt of such men and women before God. As moral and as decent and as upright as one's life and lifestyle may be. If one ignores the gospel when it is presented, he is more guilty than the inhabitants of Chorazin. May all of us, even within the church, may we think often of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. May it be constantly before us and may it remind us that it is not sufficient to merely hear the gospel. It's not enough to nod in general agreement with the sermon. We need to go much further than that. We need to repent and be converted. God calls us each week again to live the kind of holy lives that he sets before us in his law. He loved us so much that he even brings to us an element of fear to warn us of judgment. But he also loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would live forever. Jesus came into the world to bear punishment for our sin. 
Everything we need to escape God's wrath is offered there in the gospel of God's grace in Christ. If we pay no attention to it, if we ignore it or dismiss it, then Christ's warning rings down over the centuries, woe to you. If we believe it and embrace it, we are recipients of Christ and all his benefits. We will be assured of life, new life, now and forever. May God grant to each of us the ability to see the extreme folly of having looked at these cities of our text and then remain unaffected and indifferent. The warning now comes to each of us, young and old. The warning is for all of us to seriously examine our own hearts in relation to the teachings here of Christ. Probe now deeply into the very recesses of your heart. Examine critically your confidence in his promise. If you know yourself to belong to him, and if that conviction comes to expression in holy, obedient, thankful living, then praise him for the gift of so great a salvation granted you by grace out of the love of the Father. If that question has not yet been resolved in your own heart, then go to him now while it is still the day of grace. Failing to do so places you in extreme danger. Remember the words of our text. Hear me well. And if you take nothing else home from the sermon this morning, take at least this much with you. What Jesus has been telling us over and over and over again in the text and in the chapter is that it will be more tolerable for you to have lived and died and gone to hell with the inhabitants of Sodom than to have heard the gospel here in Bowmanville and yet die unconverted. Shall we pray? Lord, here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure to safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God, he to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above.